Hello, it's me. I've avoided you forever while consuming calories. I love donuts, mac and cheese. They say kale is antioxidants, but I'm anti leafy greens. Hello, can you save me? I'm in calisthenics, dreaming about Netflix and Mickey D's. When I was younger, these jeans used to fit me. Now my booty's got them bursting at the seams. There's more circumference to my gut and no gap between my thighs. Hella cravings for some fries. I did one push up in a cry. And my glutes up shaking every time that I lunge. And this gluten free bread tastes just like a sponge. One of the biggest dangers of the diet culture is the effect it has on not only our physical body, but our mental mindset. With the idea that we have to all be a certain size and how society has said that we either need to be buff with, you know, get the BBL done or have be rail thin to be a model. It causes so much of so many of us to yo-yo diet where we restrict ourselves and then that is not something that will give us substance and is manageable long term that we whiplash back to eating and that could be eating normal or binge eating which causes us to gain the weight and feel so much worse. This is Dr. Aaron Nitschke. This is Dr. Darian Parker. This is Decoding Diet Culture. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Decoding Diet Culture. Today, we're going to talk about reminders about common diet culture messages. And I chose this because it's pretty timely considering a conversation I had in one of my classes with one of my students. So as a personal trainer, educator, health coach, I always hear my students express toxic messages that they've seen through diet culture and maybe not even recognize immediately that they are toxic. 
And other times they question whether or not they're they're toxic because of the way that it makes them feel internally after they've consumed that, that information. And diet culture is, is interesting. It's, it's sort of what I call shape shifting because sometimes it's messages are overt and loud and other times they're really sneaky or they're packaged in some way that sounds really bright and shiny and beautiful, but it's really, really damaging. And fitness clients I find are particularly vulnerable to this type of messaging. Um, and I feel like as a professional in the health and exercise space that I have a responsibility to help my clients and my students and consumers reframe the message, the messages that they hear in a way that accomplishes two very specific things. First, that it rejects the underpinning underpinnings of the message of diet culture, which is the toxic messages. And it helps clients and students or consumers make health decisions based on evidence and not the random rhetoric of some science, quote unquote, uh, person on Instagram, an Insta influencer, um, a fitfluencer, someone like that, that's less than versed. So I want to, to focus on some very specific messages that I want to use this opportunity to remind you about, and there are five of them because they are the most common and two of them have come up in my class conversations just this week. So the first one is this fear of bread. Bread is bad and it makes you gain weight. If you ever notice in diet culture messaging, it's very much slanted in the low carb, no carbs, no carbs. Um, no one's living their best life without bread. Unless you have some sort of allergy sensitivity or dietary constraint, there's nothing wrong or bad about bread. And remember in a previous episode, I talked about that dichotomous thinking that diet culture tends to lean towards, which is that moral value. This food is good. And this food is bad. Bread is tasty. And it's, it's such a part of so many cultures and it does offer nutritious value depending on the vitamin content and the fiber content. Of course, we always want to, you know, look for those better options of fiber because it helps keep, keep our digestive system and gut health in check, but there's nothing wrong with a nice sourdough or a nice breadstick. Um, and second thing, bread or just carbs in general alone aren't going to cause weight gain directly. Again, it's about that overconsumption of calories that will do that. So again, unless you have an allergy or a sensitivity, or it's just not, not a type of food you enjoy, bread's not bad. Um, think about ways you can integrate a high fiber choice into your food selection. It's, it's gut healthy. It's gut friendly, unless of course, again, you've got a sensitivity, um, and, and it's just enjoyable. No one's living their best life without bread. So Really what you can do is start to learn how to evaluate food labels and identify any questionable or those highly processed products that really don't give us a, a ton of nutrients, but give us a lot of calories, which means we won't have the satiety feeling. We won't, we won't have the staying power. But that said, a lower fiber option here and there is not going to derail any healthy eating pattern you've established or are trying to establish. For example, pizza isn't really high in fiber, but it's so fun to eat. And there's this pleasurable experience with it. So 
the message is don't cut out bread because some guru who probably eats bread, mind you, spreads that message. It's just not necessary. The second one that came up in class this week is cauliflower is a great substitute. Truth, cauliflower can be a reasonable substitute for those with special dietary considerations, somebody that is worried about some sort of trying to keep their blood sugar stable, but not everything under the sun needs to be made from cauliflower because it can be. And sometimes it's just not a very tasty option. So I wanna encourage you to try out a recipe or two if you're interested in substituting rice, you know, with cauliflower or something to that effect, you want to, you want to have cauliflower rice, or you want to make, um, the cauliflower potato, something like that, try out a couple of recipes, but the only way to know is to really try it. Um, but don't just make that a default, especially if it's not something you are going to enjoy, because if you're not going to enjoy it, it's no fun to eat that food. Um, but cauliflower can really be a great option for anyone who is sensitive to gluten or simply just likes the flavor better. They're trying to sneak in more cruciferous vegetables in their diet, but there's no need to put cauliflower in things like brownies and ice cream. I mean, let's be real with what we're substituting for. The third one, and I've talked about this before, is that sugar is evil. It's, it, it's not. Um, sugar is tasty. And really, as I'm sitting here, recording this for you and, and talking to you about this, I am drinking a cup of hot tea with a teaspoon of raw honey because I like it. Um, and because diet culture tells me not to, I'm kind of stubborn when it comes to ignoring those messages of diet culture, but really though sugar can and does work against people when it's overconsumed. So I don't want to make light of that, but that's just like anything you can consume too much of anything and it can become a problem. You can even consume too many vitamins like vitamin D, for example, it's a fat soluble vitamin. If you consume too much of it, it can build up in toxicity and that's an issue. We don't want that. So really the typical American diet includes way too much processed sugar and added sugar in products that really don't need to have added sugar, things like frozen fruit, or think about canned fruit in heavy syrup. Peaches without syrup are going to taste just fine. You don't need the heavy syrup. So that's the real issue. And that really is a component of the current dietary recommendations to become aware of and rein in. But really, unless directed by a primary care physician, a dietitian, you can safely consume sugar here and there. And don't feel like you have to skip your birthday cake because it's got sugar in it. Um, really what, what will benefit you the most is being able to identify sources of added sugar and all of the secret names for sugar, you know, dextrose, maltose, rice, rice syrup, brown rice syrup, corn syrup, all of those. Think about it in terms of moderation and portion control and also explore options for natural sweeteners. So sometimes I like to use unsweetened applesauce and baked goods, or sometimes I throw a mashed banana in. Uh, it depends on what I'm making, but nonetheless, like there, there are certainly options out there. So try a few recipes and see what you think. The fourth one is always eating clean. This one gets me because it's impossible to always or never do something. Um, and, and when we're extreme at either end of the spectrum, always and never, we get ourselves on a slippery slope. And then there's the issue of clean foods. What exactly does that mean? And, and what's, what's the intention there? When I've heard a client express the need to eat clean, it's, it's really 
as I've gotten through the conversation and kind of dug a little bit deeper and asked some more informative questions, I find that it's intended to communicate a desire just to simply round out the diet and, and eat a little bit healthier by adding certain options. It has nothing to do with clean or dirty foods. Um, the issue here with this diet culture message is that we're equating clean with healthy, but that it isn't necessary to always choose like the higher priced organic options over something that is similar, um, that's a little bit lower in price, but still high in nutrient value. We, what we have here really, when we talk about clean eating is a language problem. Food isn't dirty. It's not junk. It's not bad. It's generally nutrient rich or energy dense. It, it, that's just how it is. Um, and sometimes foods can be both energy dense and nutrient dense. And, you know, think about almond butter, peanut butter, walnuts, um, fish, fatty fish. Those are all very nutrient dense. We want those in our diet, but they're also energy dense. So we can't, can't really divide into clean and dirty. So, so really if you, if you start gravitating towards that, that idea of, I need to eat clean, start asking yourself what that actually means to you. Um, and if you are a fitness professional, one of the things I like to do is ask them questions that are really intended to unravel the thought process around what clean eating means to them. And I like to introduce them to language that doesn't categorize foods as good or bad. So things that are nutrient dense versus good or bad. Um, and then really helping, helping clients come to a place of balance where their focus is on what foods they can add. So that additive value versus that restrictive component. People will be far more successful if that's the narrative and it's not about restriction or deprivation. And the last one, this is also something that came up in classes. We were talking about anthropometric measurements and goal setting, and, and it was weight loss is healthy progress. And that was actually one of the perspectives of one of my freshmen. Not a bad perspective at all, but it's also been shaped and influenced by diet culture. So again, when we look at weight in isolation, it really doesn't measure health. Um, for example, like unintentional weight loss might mean there's an issue such as a disease state and nutrient deficiency. Maybe there's a mental health concern. So when we complement weight loss, we could be complementing the presence of disease, the presence of a disordered eating pattern or an eating disorder. And really to define health and healthy progress, we need to understand all components. We need to understand blood pressure. We need to understand sleep quality and quantity stress levels. What is the lean tissue to non-lean tissue ratio? What's the outlook of this person, the mental health perspective and making it not about weight. A change in weight is simply one measurement and it is absolutely not the most revealing. So how I redirected that conversation was about the difference between a process goal versus an outcome goal. So for example, adding fruit to two meals a day versus losing 15 pounds by Christmas. When the first one is an action, a behavior, a habit. The last one or the second one, losing 15 pounds by Christmas is an outcome. So the, the key to really changing behaviors is to modify the behaviors our clients continually engage in. And then when we talk about progress, we need to talk about it in broader terms, such as energy levels and that sleep quality and response to stress or how they're handling something. You as a professional or you as a consumer can change the narrative. 
And you can do that by simply taking that, that pregnant pause in your thoughts and finding out like, why do I feel this way? And what does this actually mean? And kind of developing a sense of awareness about it. So really the truth here is that diet culture is never going to vanish. In fact, it'll probably just scream louder. It's too much of a moneymaker for those kind of peddling it. Um, those, those, you know, non-science gurus that claim to be gurus and they just have this rhetoric and this narrative that they continually promote. But as educated individuals, whether that's health and fitness professionals in this space, or it is a consumer, um, we really can help reframe the thought process and we can redefine those measures of progress by looking for evidence-based information and not at our Instagram feeds, um, not in those messages of good, good, bad, black and white thinking. Um, so, so really start taking, paying close attention to the messages that you consume surrounding health and wellness. Um, there's a whole wellness culture that really is just a, just a fancy word for diet culture. Um, and the messages are packaged very nicely and they're done up in a bow, but you strip it away and you undo that bow and it's all of these same messages. So just reminders about these are the common messages, but, but there's, there's not a lot of truth behind them, if any, in most cases. So I hope you found these reminders interesting and helpful, and we will catch you next time on another episode.